Chapter Four of Jacob's Ladder by E. Phillips Oppenheim. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Mr. Edward Biltowell of the House of Biltowell and Sons sat alone in his private office one morning a week or so later, and so communed with ghosts. It was a large apartment furnished in mid-Victorian fashion, and with the exception of the telephone and electric light, destitute of any of the modern aids to commercial enterprise. Oil paintings of Mr. Biltwell's father and grandfather hung upon the walls. A row of stiff horsehair chairs with massive frames stood around the room, one side of which was glass-fronted, giving a view of the extensive warehouse beyond. It was here that Mr. Biltwell's ghosts were gathering together, ghosts of buyers from every town in the United Kingdom, casting occasional longing glances towards where the enthroned magnate sat, hoping that he might presently issue forth and vouchsafe them a word or two of greeting. Ghosts of sellers, too, sellers of hides and skins from India and South America, Mexico and China, all anxious to do business with the world-famed House of Biltowell. Every now and then the great man would condescend to exchange amenities with one of these emissaries from distant parts. Everywhere was stir and bustle. Every few minutes a salesman would present himself with a record of his achievements. All the time in the hum of voices, the clattering of chains, the dust and turmoil of moving merchandise, the coming and going of human beings, all helping to drive the wheel of prosperity for the house of Biltywell. The ghosts faded away. Two old men were outside, dusting stacks of leather. There was no one else, no sound of movement or life. Biltywell glanced at his watch, as he sat there and waited. Presently he struck the bell in front of him, and a grey-haired bookkeeper shuffled in. "'What time did Peddler say Mr. Pratt would be round?' he asked harshly. "'Between eleven and twelve, sir.' Mr. Biltywell glanced at his watch and grunted. "'Where's Mr. Haskell?' "'Gone round to the sale, sir.' "'He got my message,' Mr. Biltywell asked anxiously. "'I told him he was on no account to buy, sir,' the cashier assented. "'He was somewhat disappointed. "'There's a probability of a rise in hides, "'and most of the pits down at the tannery are empty.' Mr. Biltowell groaned under his breath. His eyes met the eyes of his old employee. "'You know why we can't buy at the sales, Jenkins?' he muttered. The man sighed as he turned away. "'I know, sir.' There was a little stir in the place. The two men left off dusting. The clerks in the counting-house raised their heads hopefully. Jacob Pratt arrived and was ushered into the presence of the head of the firm. It was a trying moment for Mr. Biltywell, but he did his best. He wished to be patronizing, kindly, and gracious. He succeeded in being cringing. "'Glad to see you, Pratt. Glad to see you,' he said. "'Try that easy chair. A cigar, huh?' No, quite right. Don't smoke much myself till after lunch. Seen Peddler this morning? I've just come from his office, Jacob replied. Mr. Biltwell thrust his hands into his trouser pockets and leaned back in his chair. Clever fellow, Peddler, but not so clever as he thinks himself. I don't mind telling you, Pratt, between ourselves, that it was entirely my idea that you should be approached with a view to your coming in here. "'Is that so?' Jacob observed quietly. "'I knew perfectly well that you wouldn't be content to do nothing, 
a young man like you. And if you're going to keep in the leather trade at all, why not become associated with the firm you know all about, eh? I don't want to flatter myself, Mr. Biltwell proceeded, with a touch of his old arrogance, but Biltwell's, although we haven't been so energetic lately, is still pretty well at the top of the tree, eh? Not quite where it was, I'm afraid, Mr. Biltwell, Jacob objected. I've been looking through the figures, you know. Profits seem to have been going down a good deal. Pooh, that's nothing. Hides were ridiculously high all last year, but they're on the drop now. Besides, these accountants always have to make out balance sheets from a pessimistic point of view. The present capital of the firm, Jacob commented, seems to me astonishingly small. What's it figure out at, Mr. Beltwell inquired, with a fine show of carelessness. Forty thousand pounds? Well, that is small, smaller than it's been at any time during the last ten years. Perhaps I have embarked in a few too many outside investments. They are all good ones, though. No use having money lying idle, Mr. Pratt, these days. Now my idea was, he went on, striving to hide a slight quiver in his voice, that you put in, say, eighty thousand pounds, and take an equal partnership, a partnership, Pratt, remember, in Biltowell's. Eh? What's that? Mr. Biltwell looked up with a well-assumed frown of annoyance. A very fashionably dressed young lady, attractive notwithstanding a certain sullenness of expression, had entered the room, carrying a great bunch of roses. "'So sorry, Dad,' she said, strolling up to the table. "'I understood that you were alone. Here are the roses,' she added, laying them upon the table without enthusiasm. "'Are you coming up west for luncheon today?' "'My dear,' Mr. Beltwell replied, "'I'm engaged just now. "'By the by, you know Mr. Pratt, don't you? "'Pratt, you remember my daughter.' "'Jacob, whose memories of that young lady, "'with her masses of yellow hair and most alluring smile, "'had kept him in fairyland for three months, "'and a little lower than hell for the last two years, "'took fierce command of himself as he rose to his feet "'and received a very cordial but somewhat forced greeting.' from this unexpected visitor. "'Of course I know Mr. Pratt,' she answered, "'and I hope he hasn't altogether forgotten me. "'The last time I saw you, "'you bicycled over one evening, didn't you, "'to see my father's roses, "'and we made you play tennis. "'I remember how cross Dad was, "'because you played without shoes.' "'Mr. Pratt is doubtless better provided in these days,' "'Biltwell observed, with an elephantine smile.' What about running over to see us tonight or tomorrow night in that new car of yours, Pratt, huh? Do come, the young lady begged, with a very colorful imitation of enthusiasm. I am longing for some tennis. You are very kind, Jacob replied. May I leave it open for just a short time? Certainly, certainly, Mr. Biltwell agreed. Sybil, run along and sit in the waiting room for a few minutes. I'll take you up to the Carlton if I could spare the time. May I take Mr. Pratt, perhaps? Sybil passed out, flashing a very brilliant, if not wholly natural smile into Jacob's face as he held open the door. Mr. Biltwell watched the latter anxiously as he returned slowly to his place. He was not altogether satisfied with the result of his subtle little plot. Where were we, he continued, struggling hard, to preserve in that cheerfulness which sat upon him in these days like an ill-fitting garment. Ah, I know, eighty thousand pounds and an equal partnership. How does that appeal to you, Mr. Pratt? 
There was one or two points in the balance sheet which struck me, Jacob confessed, gazing down at his well-creased trousers. The margin between assets and liabilities, though small, might be considered sufficient, but the liability on bills under discount seemed to me extraordinarily large. Mr. Biltiwell's pencil, which had been straying idly over the blotting pad by his side, stopped. He looked at his visitor with a frown. "'Credits must always be large in our trade,' he said sharply. "'You know that, Mr. Pratt.' "'Your credits, however,' Jacob pointed out, "'are abnormal. I ventured to take out a list of six names, on each one of whom you have acceptances running into the tune of twenty or thirty thousand pounds. The majority of my customers, Mr. Biltwell declared, with a little catch in his breath, are as safe as the Bank of England. Jacob produced a very elegant Morocco pocketbook with gold edges and studied a slip of paper which he held toward his companion. Here's a list of the firms, he continued. I have interviewed most of them and made it worth their while to tell me the truth. There isn't one of them that isn't hopelessly insolvent. They are being kept on their legs by you and your bankers, simply and solely to bolster up the credit of the house of Biltywell. Sir, Mr. Biltywell thundered. I should drop that tone if I were you, Jacob advised coldly. You have been a bully all your life, and a cruel one at that. Lately, you have become dishonest. When the firm of Biltywell is compelled to file its petition in bankruptcy, which I imagine will be a matter of only a few weeks, I do not envy your examination before the official receiver. Mr. Biltewell collapsed like a pricked bladder. He shriveled in his clothes. There was a whine in his tone as he substituted appeal for argument. There's good business to be done here still, he pleaded. Even if the firm lost a little money on those names, there are two of them at least who might weather the storm with reasonable assistance. Pratt, they tell me you're pretty well a millionaire. I'm sorry if I was hard on you in the old days. If you won't take a partnership, will you buy the business? Jacob laughed scornfully. If I were ten times a millionaire, he said, rising to his feet, I would never risk a penny of my money to rid you of the millstone you have hung around your neck. It is going to be part of my activity in life, Mr. Biltwell, to assist nature in dispensing justice. For many years you have ruled the trade in which we were both brought up, and during the whole of that time you have never accomplished a single gracious or kindly action. You have wound up trying to drag me into a business which is rotten to the core. Your accountants may be technically justified in reckoning that £140,000 owed you by these six men is good because they never failed, but you yourself know that they are hopelessly insolvent, and that the moment you stop renewing their bills, they will topple down like ninepins. I would not help you if you were starving. I shall read of your bankruptcy with pleasure. There is, I think, nothing more to be said. Mr. Biltiwell sat in his chair dazed for a long time after Jacob had left him. His daughter reappeared and left at once, harshly dismissed. His clerks went out for lunch and returned at the appointed hour. Mr. Biltiwell was seeing ghosts. Jacob and his friend dined together that night in a well-known grill room. Dauncey, to whom in those days every man seemed to be a brother and every place he entered a fairy palace, showed signs of distress as he listened to his companion's story. Dear friend, he remonstrated, 
of what use in the world is revenge. I do not suggest that you should throw your money away in trying to help Bilty well, but you might at least have left him alone. Jacob shook his head. The corners of his mouth tightened. He spoke with grave seriousness. Dick, he said, you are like the man who sympathizes with the evil growth which it is the surgeon's task to remove. In the days of his prosperity, Biltywell was a brute and a bully. His only moment of comparative geniality came when he was steeped in wine and glutted with food. His own laziness and self-indulgence paved the way to his ruin. He then became dishonest. He deliberately tried to cheat me. He stooped even to the paltry trick of remembering that I once admired his daughter and dragged her in to complete his humiliation. Believe me, the world is a better place without its built wells a better and healthier place, and where I find them in life, I am going to use the knife. You have used it this time, perhaps, more effectually than you thought, Dauncey groaned, as he took an evening paper from his pocket and passed it across the table. Mr. Biltowell shot himself in his office late this afternoon. I did not tell you before, for fear it might spoil your dinner. Jacob sipped his wine unmoved. It was really the only thing left for him, was his brief comment. Dauncey was once more the melancholy man. I hope that all your interventions, or whatever you may call them, he said, won't end in the same way. Jacob's eyes looked through the walls of the restaurant. A sudden impulse of fancy had carried him forward into that land of adventure to which he held the golden key. He felt the thrill of danger, the mystery of unknown places. He passed from palace to hovel. He heard the curse of the defeated schemer. He felt the warmth and joy of gratitude. All these figures, save one, were imaginary, and that one was always there, always watching, always with a look of reproach, which he seemed already to see in her cold blue eyes. He fancied himself pleading with her, only to be scorned, hiding from the dangers she invoked, fancied her, the protectress of his enemies, the evil genius of those whom he would have befriended. And all the time there lingered in the background of his mind the memory of that single evening when, angered by her father's condescension, she had chosen to be kind to him, had shown him the secret places in that wonderful garden, glorious with budding rhododendrons, fragrant with the roses drooping from the long pergola, a little scene out of fairyland, through which he had walked under the rising moon like a man bewildered with strange happiness. Richard leaned forward in his place. Are you seeing ghosts? he asked curiously. Jacob was suddenly back from that unreal world into which his magical prosperity had pitchforked him. He drained the glass, which he raised to his lips with firm fingers. Ghosts belong to the past, he answered. All that we have any concern with is the future. End of chapter 4